0: Pray with me this morning. Father God, I just acknowledge that we all come from different places with different burdens and um, often heaviness uh, from the week that precedes each Sunday morning, Lord. We come and you meet with us and you speak to us through your word. I pray, by the power of that word, by the presence of the Spirit, that you might minister it to each of our hearts and meet us in the midst of whatever it is that we're coming with. Pray that you would be with us all sinners as we sit under your word that you would be with me, a sinner, as I preach it. Pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. It's good to be with all of you this morning. I'm going to do this for a few more weeks at least, but my name is Eric. I'm the new pastor here at Kishwaukee. I don't know when that actually expires. New probably doesn't expire for years, but... um... But it's really good to be with you all. We're continuing our series through the book of Colossians this morning. If you haven't been with us the last few weeks, we've been working through this book where Paul is writing to this church in Colossae, a church that he himself has never actually visited, and is reminding them of the foundational truths of Christianity. He's reminding them to kind of keep the first things of the Christian faith first. And so I read this passage. I was thinking this morning, um, some of you might be aware before we moved here, Uh, We lived in Lincoln, Nebraska, and I worked part-time as an assistant pastor for some time there, but I also worked full-time as a manager for a giant retail corporation, Um, and among the many lessons that I learned in that job as a manager, and one of the ones I enjoyed the least, was learning how to talk about yourself. See, there's this thing that happens in the business world, especially in big companies, where it's easy to get lost in the shuffle, and so you have to point out to people the things that you're doing. One of my managers called it spotlighting what you're doing. So when your boss asks you how things are going, you're not supposed to say fine. You're supposed to point out to him all of the great ways that you're doing a really good job at what it is that you're supposed to do. And that was a big adjustment for me because in the world that I came from, you just don't do that. You don't talk about yourself. You, um, Every time I spotlighted some achievement, I felt like that guy at a dinner party, right? The guy who's like, this is a delicious steak. I haven't had a steak this good since I signed that multi-million dollar in Houston last year. (laughs) And you just want to punch that guy. (laughs) And one of the things that's always interested me about Paul, though, is that he does something that seems kind of like that. He does this spotlighting of himself and his ministry in his letters. Here, as he writes to the Colossians... He's just gotten done giving thanks for them and talking about the supremacy and splendor of Jesus, and he's about to offer them some challenge and instruction as a church. But in between those two, he takes this break and he talks about himself and his ministry. He wants to tell them about the work that he's been doing as an apostle and minister of the gospel. And I often feel myself kind of wondering, why is Paul doing that? It's not like it was for me in the business world, because he's trying to spotlight how awesome he is. As we're going to see in just a minute when we get into some of the contents of what he has to say, that's definitely not the case. But I suspect there's, there's two reasons. One is simply that he's about to challenge the Colossians with some hard things, and so he wants to remind them of his faithfulness in ministry for the gospel and of his service to Jesus. But it's more than just that. I think Paul's actually trying to challenge the Colossians with the way that he describes himself and his ministry to teach them. This is not a usual list of ministry accomplishments, right? Paul's not listing off the places he went where he planted churches and how big those churches have grown. Instead, Paul is using his life as a model for what gospel ministry looks like and for how the Colossians should picture Christianity looking when they put it into practice. And I think that goal is what makes this passage helpful to us. We all, every one of us, are called to be ministers of the gospel. It's unfortunate that we talk about ministry often in this very limited way where it's what people like me do, right? Pastors and full-time workers at church. Um, That's not how the Bible views ministry. In Ephesians 4.11, Paul says that God gave people like pastors and teachers to the church to equip the saints, which is all of us, to equip the saints so that they can do the work of ministry. If you are following Jesus, you're called to be a minister, and that can mean all kinds of different things. It could mean something formal, like teaching a Sunday school class or working with the youth. Mostly, it means informal stuff, the stuff we do every day. When you're caring for an elderly relative and showing them Jesus' love, that's ministry. That's ministry. When you are talking with a neighbor about Christianity, that's ministry. Parenting is ministry, and marriage is ministry. And that's because in Scripture, ministry just means being Jesus to people, helping people meet with and grow in Christ. Helping people meet with and grow in Christ. So here's what I want us to think about this morning. Paul holds up his ministry as an example as something we can all learn from as each of us pursues whatever ministries Jesus has called us to have in our lives. There's something unique about Paul's calling, right? He's an apostle, and none of us are apostles. But there's also something broader and more universal, and that's what I want us to kind of think about. So what is ministry like, according to Paul? What kind of model does he give? First, Paul wants us to see that ministry is hard. Ministry is hard. Look at verse 24. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, he says, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's affliction. That's not how seminaries usually front-line ministry, right? The pamphlets don't usually start with, rejoice in your suffering for Christ here at this seminary. And, and what does Paul mean even? Filling up what is lacking in regards to Christ's affliction, to Christ's suffering, Obviously, what is lacking isn't their power or their provision. Just a few verses before, Paul is talking about how Jesus' death and suffering brought about the redemption of all of creation. So what does Paul mean? I think the only answer that makes sense is that for Paul, what is lacking in Christ's affliction is its presence with the Colossians. That for Paul, ministry means suffering in a place with people like Jesus and so making Jesus' suffering something that is present in specific places and lives. In case you still had any question about whether how Paul views ministry, again in verse 29, um, he says that he strenuously contends for the gospel with the energy Christ works in him. And that's a, that's a nice translation there. The, the Greek word is I rarely use Greek words. I'm sorry, but this is a nice one. But it's agonizomai, which is the word you get agony from, right? That Paul is saying that he suffers and struggles in his ministry for the gospel. In two one, it's that same word. Paul talks about how hard he contends in his ministry. And again, that word is suffering, struggling in his ministry when he talks about it. For Paul, what ministry looks like is suffering and struggling and sharing in Christ's affliction, which is to say, right up front, that it looks hard. Which might seem like a strange place to start, but I actually find that really encouraging. And maybe you do too. I think I need a dose of that kind of realism when I think about ministering to people. Because I've read all these books about how to have a good ministry. You do that when you're a pastor. You read all these books and listen to sermons and devotionals telling you about how to go rock the world for Jesus. And you hear all these stories about different people's ministries. And in every one of those stories, it's successful and exciting. And, and they're doing these great things. And when I take a look at all of those books and devotionals and stories and compare them to my day to day life, I can feel kind of discouraged. Ministering to people is hard. Loving people is hard. In part, just because people are hard, right? Especially when you're forced into close proximity with them. You and I are hard to live with and minister to. And what's more, the work we're called to is hard. If ministry looks like filling up what is lacking in Jesus' affliction, and what's lacking is someone suffering in a way that is present then stepping into ministry means stepping into a place of suffering and hardship. I had the chance to talk to several of you who are engaged in caring for elderly parents this week as I was thinking about this sermon. And one of the things that always strikes me is how thankless ministries like that can feel when the person doesn't necessarily, they're not necessarily grateful for the care that you're giving them. They don't necessarily even want to be ministered to and cared for. And that doesn't mean, though, that you're failing in your calling as you try to show love and care to to them, that you're doing God's work in that loving care. And he's pleased. And that in many ways, the struggle and suffering that you feel as you try to walk into that and lean into that, that's proof that this is the kind of ministry that Paul is calling us to do. Satan attacks us in all kinds of ways. And one of the key ones can be discouragement. One of the main ways, I think, that we can be discouraged in our ministries is by believing the lie that if we were actually doing what God wanted us to do, things would be just a little bit easier. But listen to the Apostle Paul, right? He often returns to this theme of suffering in ministry. It's kind of the common thread of all the times he talks about his own ministry and service. And in 2 Corinthians 11... He's confronting these false teachers, and he decides to really lay out his ministry cred, to really show why he's convinced that he's doing the Lord's work. And here is how Paul describes his life in ministry. He says, "'I have been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again,' Five times I received the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And then Paul says that this is my ministry that I am boasting in. Paul, the apostle, the guy who wrote the New Testament, half the New Testament, um, ministry for him was full of hardship and suffering and discouragement and struggle. There's more to be said than just that it's hard, right? We'll get to some encouraging stuff in a little while. But friends, be encouraged by that. Because even though you might feel discouraged, and even though it's a struggle, don't believe the devil's lie that those truths somehow invalidate the work that you're doing in loving and serving people. Those aren't signs of a failed ministry. They are symptoms of its success. So Paul wants to emphasize that ministry is hard. And not only that, but before he gets to the cheerful stuff, I think he also wants to emphasize that ministry is slow. Ministry is slow. That might not be as obvious from a surface reading of the text. But look at verse 28. Paul talks about the struggle he's having for the Colossians. And he then says that the goal of this struggle is to present everyone fully mature in Christ. Fully mature. Right? Paul's not like we can be sometimes as the church, judging su- success just by how many, how many rear ends you got in the pews last week, right? Or how well attended a big event was. Paul's goal in ministry is the whole arc of the Christian life, Starting where people are nowhere and don't even know Jesus, ending when they're fully mature and grown up into Christ-likeness. A process that takes a lifetime. I suspect that's part of why Paul views ministry as struggle and suffering. Right? Because because it's not that hard to do some one-off thing, but if you look at the whole life and faithfulness over that time, that's necessarily going to entail a lot of struggle and a lot of discouragement. I think you see that same slowness again in chapter 2, 2, and 3. Paul tells us his goal for ministry, and it's not a small goal either. He wants people to be encouraged in heart, united in love, having the full riches of complete understanding. Again, just notice how those long-term, those are long-term goals, right? You don't get people fully united in love with a complete understanding of the full riches of the gospel overnight. That's not something that you can do in a single sermon or weekend conference. It's a labor of years. And this is actually how scripture usually views ministry. When we read the Bible, we can sometimes focus only on the kind of really exciting moments, the flashy moments, the big crowds that follow Jesus sometimes, or or early in the book of Acts, these big conversions. But even in the Bible, those moments are exceptional, Ministry, instead, is usually patterned after the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Ministry is about making disciples, which is the call of that commission, a process that starts before people are even Christians and encompasses them becoming Christians, being baptized in the Great Commission, and then continuing on as they grow in faith until ultimately what Jesus says is they learn to obey everything that I have commanded you which is not a place that any of us have even arrived at yet. But the Great Commission is that same sort of great arc of Christian life kind of vision of ministry. And I suspect that that's why the Great Commission ends with the promise that God is with us always, even to the end of the age. Because if you're going to engage in that kind of ministry, you need his faithful presence. And it is important for us, I think, to recognize that ministry is slow too, as individuals And as a church, on an individual level, it reminds us that ministering to someone is almost always going to be a long-term process. If you're anything like me, you tend to just want to fix things for people, right? You've got a problem? Let me fix that. Let me deal with it. You're wrestling with an issue? Let me solve that issue for you. But the thing is, issues are rarely that easy to actually solve. People are deeply resistant to simple fixing. We can grow impatient when change seems slow or faltering, but that is exactly the kind of ministry Jesus is calling us to. I think about... I mean, I was thinking this week, honestly, about ministering to people in the midst of grief, right? I've been, the last few days, you know, sitting with the Mueller's and watching, you know, the grief that they've been experiencing with the loss of their daughter, and a temptation when we're confronted with grief, is to try to fix it. We say these trite things to people that are grieving, that she's in a better place, or God has a plan, and those things are true, but the way we say them seems to imply that we expect that to somehow fix the sadness and pain that they're feeling, that it's going to somehow make it less tragic. But they can't. Instead, trying to fix trying to fix it with those kind of easy truths, the heart of Christian ministry to the grieving is instead to enter in to grief with them, to open ourselves up and share in the sadness and pain and sit with them, bearing the weight of that suffering, just like Jesus does, and to do that as long as it takes, which is a long time. The opposite of those simple truths is, a, is, is, is just being with people in their pain and sadness in a process that could well take years. The heart of it is just to enter into the darkness of grief with people and stay there with them, even though that darkness is going to linger. It's taking the time that ministry is going to take. More generally, ministry being slow means that, that the area of ministry that God has given you Just be encouraged to stick with it and don't give up. That neighbor that you've befriended, that coworker you've been praying for, it's not a failure of your ministry to them that they aren't fixed yet or that they never seem to be fixed. Paul uses the analogy of maturity here in this text to talk about ministry. And as anyone who's been around kids know, maturity is a long process. As a church, we also need to be mindful of the fact that ministry can be slow. In particular, that should remind us that the church should always be invested in the long term with people. I think we can tend to look at churches the way we watch fireworks shows, right? We're just looking for the next kind of explosion, the next exciting thing, the next, the next big event that's happening. But the problem is that if you try to create a fireworks show in your church, all that you end up making is a series of flashes in the pan, not something that lasts, not something that grows people. Our calling as a church is to make disciples, to encourage hearts and unite people in love and grow them towards complete understanding of the full riches of the gospel, as Paul put it in this text. And that kind of ministry is always measured in the long term. One final practical note as we engage in that kind of slow ministry. Um... I find the reality that ministry is slow, sort of like it's hard, actually encouraging sometimes because it reminds me that ministry is ultimately in God's hands, that rather than trying to fix people, but what we are being called into individually and as a church is to be part of a process that people are walking through, part of a process of love and gospel truth that hopefully helps them to grow but that often, because of the slowness of the process, is one that we're not even going to see the fruits from. But that doesn't mean that our ministry in those moments isn't hugely important. It just means that God moves at his own speed and not at ours. And I have to tell you a story about that. I have a dear friend, uh, Mark, who's a pastor who grew up in Australia, um, which is not a particularly religious country. And so Mark He was in seminary in Australia and he had a friend who one day, the friend was in seminary too, this friend went to a new barber because his normal barber was out of town. And he's sitting in the barber chair and this friend is reading one of his books from classes and the barber gets interested and he asks him about it and they get into this discussion about Jesus and Christianity, which in Australia apparently is not something that normally happens. And the barber wasn't a Christian but he had all these questions for Mark's friend that he asked him. And so... Uh, Mark's friend was excited. He's like, this is this great ministry opportunity. And so a few weeks later, when he needs a haircut, he comes back to this barber, and the barber remembers him, and he says, I've got more questions for you, and they talk about more questions related to Christianity. And he goes back a few weeks after that, and he's, he's so convinced that this is this ministry Jesus is giving him, he starts getting his haircut every week, simply so that he can <laughs> sit with this guy and, and, you know, and answer his questions, but over time, that excitement for Mark's friend waned. The barber always had more questions, but he never, he never seemed like he was getting anywhere, right? There was never any change. He never was becoming a Christian. And over time, Mark's friend got discouraged. And so after, he said it was a little less than a year of weekly haircuts, right? Um, his friend ended up just going to another barber. And a few weeks after that, Mark needed a haircut. And so he decided to go visit the barber, and he um, ended up going to this barber his friend had been going to because he needed somebody to go to. Um, I've seen pictures of him at this point, and I think he only went to the barber like once a year. But he mentioned that he went to that same seminary that his friend went to, and the barber was interested and excited, and he says to Mark, I'm glad you came in. I've got another question that I was meaning to ask him. And Mark says, Sure, what is it in an Australian accent that I can't do? And the barber says... What do I have to do to become a Christian? And I've loved that story ever since I heard Mark tell it years ago because it reminds me not to give up, even though ministry is slow, right? If it wasn't for the fact that Mark was friends with this guy, he never would have known that that year of weekly haircuts had resulted in this guy becoming a Christian. Ministry is often a slow process, but God is at work through it and through us, and you never know what kind of fruit it's going to bear. So ministry is hard, and ministry is slow. And like I said, I do find those truths encouraging in some ways, but they are discouraging truths, right? Um, We can wonder, if that's true, why bother? Why in the world would you try to minister to anybody if that's what it looks like? And the good news is that as much as ministry is hard, and slow, Paul's example that he shows also teaches us that ministry is worth it. Ministry is worth it. Why does Paul do ministry despite the challenges? First, for him in this text, it's because of something about the gospel himself that just compels him to. Look at how he talks about the gospel in verses 26 and 27. It's a mystery that has been kept hidden, but now is being disclosed. It's this great secret that you've never heard. And this mystery for Paul is beautiful. It is the glorious riches of the gospel, as Paul puts it here. The gospel of God's reconciling grace, of God making peace with us and creating a community of peace between us. It's the kind of earth-shaking, mind-blowing, just good news that somehow for Paul, just by knowing that it's true, compels him to minister. And it's not just the content of the gospel message. It's also the effect that it has on those that it meets. In 2.5, Paul talks about how he delights to see the way the gospel has shaped and formed the Colossians. He delights in seeing how it's changed them. And it's a beautiful thing when you get to glimpse the gospel at work. Indeed, the riches of the gospel for Paul are in verse 27. He says that ultimately they are Christ in you, the hope of glory, that seeing Jesus begin to be manifested in somebody's life, seeing someone grow and change and be transformed by Jesus, that that is something glorious, that seeing them transformed by the gospel makes it worth doing. And as Paul pursues that glorious work, he's also encouraged by the fact that God is there to help him. In verse 29, in the middle of talking about how hard he struggles and labors for the gospel, he says that he's doing it with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. That we can't get through the suffering or have the patience to do ministry on our own. That we need God's help and that he in Jesus Christ is there to help us. I think about it. One of the, the big ministries that Jesus gives many of us at some point in our lives is to raise children. We're called to love them and to teach them how to live in the world and to teach them how to grow up in faith in the hopes that they would love and embrace Jesus Christ for themselves. And that process is hard, right? Ask any parent. Often Elizabeth and I get the kids to bed and look at each other and say, should we do some, some fun thing or, you know, whatever? And then we're just like, no, and we slump into the couch because we're so exhausted, right? Um, and it's slow. While some of you will tell me that it passes in a, the blink of an eye because your year years past it, right? When I'm at Target and one kid is screaming and the other kid is pulling things off the shelf and throwing it into the cart, it feels like it lasts forever. Um, but you know what? It is worth it, and that's why we do it. First, the calling itself is worth it, like the gospel is. Being entrusted to be a parent is a high and beautiful calling. And seeing the fruit in my children's lives, just like seeing the fruit of the gospel in people's lives, that's worth it too. In between the disobeying and the yelling and the fighting, there are those moments when 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 my son gives my daughter a hug, right? Or they one of my kids apologizes to the other of their own initiative for something that they've done. Or they ask some question that shows that they've been thinking about Jesus and about the world, and and I'm like, yes, that's what it's for. That is worth it. And ultimately, what gets us through is the knowledge that God is there with us, strengthening us when we're weak and graciously providing when we fail. And Paul often compares ministry to parenting. He even uses that image in our own text, and it's no accident, because that is what all ministry is like. It is hard and slow, but it is worthwhile because of the incredible calling we have to be Jesus to those around us and to see glimpses of the fruit of that calling and to have God help us along the way. And that's ultimately what I want to communicate to all of us about Paul's example of ministry. It's easy When you talk about our call to be Christ's ministers, to make it into something that you ought to do, to shake your finger at people and make them feel guilty for not doing some ministry or other. What I want us to feel instead is just how beautiful this calling that Jesus gives each of us is. That sharing in Christ's affliction is not pleasant, but it is a noble and great calling. You are somehow being Jesus to people. You're ministering Christ. Walking patiently with people is tiring, but it is also worth it. You are privileged to see those people grow up into maturity and discipleship, and God has let you be a part of that process. Many of us hunger for more of a sense of meaning and purpose in our lives. And this is it. In ministering and loving to those around us, we are being invited into God's great work of saving the world, as we talked about Jesus last week. That we are his ambassadors, his agents, his foot soldiers in this world. And that that is a hard calling, but that is a calling full of significance that matters and is worth doing. So in those areas where you're ministering, and it is hard, feel encouraged. It's a great struggle that you're engaged in, a heroic struggle. That can feel hard to believe when your kid is peed all over the house, right? Or the person that you're caring for is yelling at you, or the the, the guy you're sharing your faith with tells you that he thinks you're an idiot. It can feel hard to believe, but it is a noble and heroic calling that you're engaged in. And if you're feeling hesitant to begin to try to minister, just jump in. It won't be easy or quick or painless, but it will be significant and worthwhile. Staying on the shore might feel safe and easy, but there's an ocean out there that you'll never get to experience or explore if you do. Most of all, in everything, know that God is with you, the same power at work in the Apostle Paul the power that enabled him to brave all of those imprisonments and 40 lashes plus one and shipwrecks and nights spent sleeping out of doors, that power that enabled him to write half the New Testament and plant churches all over the world, that is the exact same power that goes with you when you engage in the daily ministries that you have as well, that you belong to Jesus and his Holy Spirit is with you and he is at work in you. God is with you. So this is Paul's example of ministry. It's full of suffering, it takes a long time, and it is worth it. I was thinking, Theodore Roosevelt once commented, nothing in the world is worth having or worth doing unless it means effort, pain, and difficulty. He says, I've never envied a human who led an easy life, but I have envied many people who have led difficult lives well. And that is the heart of what it means to enter into ministry. We live in a world in love with the easy. You put, on, you put your TV dinner in the microwave and you turn on your Netflix and you just drift. And there's nothing wrong with doing those things, but, but living your life around those things, nobody sings songs or writes stories about being a couch potato. But the call of ministry, the call of Jesus that he is inviting you into to love people and care for people and be Christ for people, that is the kind of thing that is worth writing stories and songs about. It is worthwhile. So come join the struggle or take heart in the midst of it because Jesus Christ goes there with us and he supports us and it is worth more than we could ever imagine. Do you pray with me? Father God, I recognize that the life you call us into as Christians is hard and that it can challenge our patience. But I give thanks because it is, it is something that, that is just worth leaning into and it is something even more that you meet us in the midst of, that you are with us, that you support us. And I pray that you would just encourage all of our hearts as we walk out of this place to show your love Proclaim your gospel grace to those we encounter. Pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Stand with me let's praise the Lord Come down.